I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I feel bad about this, but I'm also delighted by this. But I came up with this mythology uh, when I was about 10 years old about the roof people. And so the roof people are lost souls. They, you know, occupy a kind of purgatory on roofs and in attics. And so they're always watching us and they're jealous and spiteful of the living. So one night to mess with my sister, I climbed down on the roof and I went over to her window and I scratched and banged at it. And then I raced back to my room, shut the window, jumped into bed. And when she arrived a moment later, panting in terror, you know, I was able to just say, what? It was, it was the roof people. It wasn't me. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And today... We have a third mysterious co-host, the ghost oh my of... God, stop it, stop it. <laughs> oh, I'm not scared. I'm definitely not scared of you. Not scared. My kids are also not scared of me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love scary stuff. I don't love Halloween. We are uh, both total weaklings. We are like totally the wrong people to do this episode. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think I'm I'm slowly trying to break down my my barriers to horror and have been trying to to gently uh, introduce myself to <laughs> gently <laughs> to you know some slow starter horror, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, now that the Trump administration is here, I don't get to have a gentle introduction to horror at all. Hey, that's our horror story, and uh, you know we do read that story every day. You know, and we started to think about because Halloween is coming up, and this is our Halloween episode. You know, how horror writers are thinking about generating imaginative fear when daily life and political leadership, or lack thereof, is generating more and more real fear all the time. 
And we are publishing this episode on October 31st, so I'm going to confront my horror demons for Halloween. Fortunately, we have two fantastic guests to help with that today. On the second half of the show, we'll be joined by novelist Benjamin Percy, whose most recent book is Suicide Woods. But first, we're excited to speak with Victor Laval. He's the author of the short story collection Slap Boxing with Jesus, four novels, The Ecstatic, Big Machine, The Devil in Silver, and The Changeling, and two novellas, Lucretia and the Croons, and The Ballad of Black Tom. He's also the creator and writer of a comic book, Destroyer, the winner of a Whiting, a Guggenheim, a United States Artists Ford Fellowship, a Shirley Jackson Award, and an American Book Award. He's also received the key to Southeast Queens, which is pretty cool. Victor, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. I really have appreciated how your horror writing engages politics. I wonder if we could begin our conversation by having you read from The Changeling, one of your more recent works. Absolutely. The only thing you, I guess, need to know is that there's uh, the main character's name is Apollo and his wife's name is Emma. He was in an apartment in New York City, his apartment, where he'd lived with his family for two years, being guided back to clarity, to consciousness by the lead line of another person's agony. In a way, he had to be grateful for this stranger's pain. If not for that screaming, he'd only flail aimlessly in this darkness, lost. When he finally opened his eyes, once he'd blinked away the seawater of stupefaction, he saw he was in a kitchen, his kitchen, sitting in one of the white Ikea chairs Emma had ordered for them six months ago. He was backed into a corner, was saturated not by seawater but by sweat. There was vomit across his chest on his pants, still moist, the color of a creme brulee. He couldn't smell it, not yet, because he was too confused. He kicked his legs again like when he'd been swimming and his feet rattled. He shrugged his pinched shoulders and heard another rattle. He tried to look down, but when he did, his neck got squeezed so tightly he had to open his mouth to gasp. He was in his own kitchen, chained to one of his chairs. A bike lock, a U-lock, had been looped around his throat. It held him tight to the steam pipe that ran from the kitchen floor into the ceiling. Because winter had lasted so long, the steam pipe was on. When he pulled forward and gasped, the lock resisted, and he slumped backward. As soon as he did, the back of his exposed neck touched the steam pipe, like a pork cutlet pressed against a hot skillet. He hissed, the same sound as frying meat, and lurched forward but got yoked in the throat yet again. He had to sit in one position, exactly straight, to keep himself from being choked or burned. The whole room felt tropical. Heat in the high 90s filled the place. The steam pipe was partly to blame, yes, but he could also hear now, from the other rooms in the apartment, the rattle and fizzle of the radiators. All were on. The apartment might as well be melting. His face, his exposed arms, his bare feet, his skin puckered all over from this heat. And then there was the screaming, which still hadn't stopped. He could turn his head if he did it carefully. He could look around the kitchen if he mastered the natural panic. He scanned the kitchen panning like a security camera. There was a claw hammer on the counter, a carving knife on the windowsill, and the wooden floor was littered with hundreds of tiny green pellets. This was rat poison. They'd found a box of the stuff under the kitchen sink when they moved in and just left it there. He'd meant to get rid of it now that Brian was crawling, but there had been so many other things to handle that he'd forgotten. Now the pellets were sprayed across the kitchen floor like buckshot. Upturned on the floor right near his feet lay a bowl, his bowl, morning breakfast, 
oatmeal spread in a burst. And there on the oven, finally, he found the source of all that screaming, not a person, but a kettle. The flame was turned high and the water inside was on the boil. The kettle wailed and spewed a plume of smoke from its snout, a little dragon. It had been sitting on the fire for so long, the water inside roiling, that it jiggled and jumped on the stovetop. The kettle couldn't wait to pounce. But at least it was only a kettle, not a person in pain after all. The only one in danger was him. For a moment, this even relieved him. Take a breath. But then his body shook all over, the legs and arms clanging in their chains. All this was for him. He was surprised to be alive. The burning kettle wailed a wet threat. His current condition would not last. His mouth opened then and he called out hoarsely. It was a woman's name, but you wouldn't know it. A slurred sound, that's all it was. He tried a second time. Em? If he'd been a boy, he would have called for his mother. Since he was a man, he called to his wife. Emma, he tried again, but who could hear him over the kettle? He barely heard himself, and after that third try, a spasm of pain shot up from his left foot, through his thigh, and into the small of his back. So bad it made him twist, which teased the bike lock, and in retaliation it choked him backward again. This time it was the back of his head, not his neck, that glanced against the steam pipe. It burned right through his short hair, but he controlled himself this time. He didn't lurch too far forward, so he was spared another squeeze around the throat. He panted in the kitchen, out of breath and out of ideas. Brian, he whispered. Emma and Brian, his family. He forgot his chains, his pains, the instruments of violence scattered across the room. Where was his family? Were they safe? Despite the months of distance between Apollo and Emma, in this moment he drew her back to his heart, as close as his son, instantly. She'd gone out that morning. She'd left the keys. He'd locked her out. At least she wasn't here then. But that left only him and Brian. Now the kettle's screeching seemed like the voice of his newer fear. Not for himself, but for the boy. And just then, he heard the creak of the floorboards in the next room. From his chair in the corner, he could look out of the kitchen and see the back room. Its off-white door was shut. Good as his word, he'd paid the super to hang the door in Brian's room, and now he couldn't regret the improvement more. If they hadn't hung the fucking door, he wouldn't have to sit here looking at it, nauseous with fear. If the door hadn't been there, at least he could have seen who was in the back room, rather than waiting for the monster to be revealed. Unlike pain, the ache of anticipation gets so deep inside you, it can't be soothed by adrenaline or shock. It's a torture to the nervous system. As he watched the door of the back room, his nerves were being shocked in wave after wave. The door creaked as it swung back. The kettle insisted that it not be ignored. The left side of his face almost seemed to burn from the high-pitched screeching. A figure stood in the doorway. Apollo felt a child's terror, overwhelming and immense. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we we don't usually actually start with a reading, but it seemed like this is our Halloween episode, and that seems <laughs> like a good reading for Halloween. And there's also such a, a an amazing reveal to to come in that scene. Um, I don't know. We'll, maybe I don't know if we're going to do spoilers here. Maybe not. <laughs> that book's been out <laughs> yeah, long enough. Spoil that we... one. I feel like that's the big the big. Uh, I have to say, like one of my joys 
I always know, like if someone's posting on, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, I know when they've reached this chapter when they just write like, damn. <laughs> At the yeah. end. So without saying anything about spoilers, we'll just say so much of the changeling is about parenting and about what we can and can't foresee and what we can and can't protect our children from. Um, How do you think about writing about fear these days when people are feeling more and more anxious just from reading the daily news? You know, given that your writing has engages politics, how has horror, how has writing horror changed for you since you first began doing it? Uh, Well, I think actually one of the, great things about horror as a genre or as a feeling is that uh, um, there's almost always something in this world uh, that's scaring people. Uh, there, are, there are times in life, uh, like now, I believe, that when the dial is turned up even louder um, and when horror feels even more necessary, uh, and I would say it feels necessary because um, that feeling, that anxiety, that fear, that uh, terror uh, needs a, a a sense of expression. Needs a place for it to go. You know, and some people they exercise. Some people they eat, they drink, smoke, or they watch a horror movie or they read something frightening. But it's it, kind of like I, that tea kettle in the background of that scene going off exactly. all the time is what it feels like to me. I think that's right. And like, um, uh, you know, in that chapter, eventually that tea kettle gets used, uh, right? Like, a, yeah. It, it's got to be, um, it's not enough for it to just be there rattling and whistling. You also need to, uh, at least for me, the release is, all right, let's see this, let's see this through as bad as it can get. And hopefully real life won't get as bad as that. Oh my God. It, it, that, yeah, that scene gets so, um, it's, I mean, even just listening to you read it, I sort of imagined that this would happen, that the pacing of you reading it aloud I've read this scene before and yet I'm still squicked out, you know, and, and um, the part where you write about anticipation, unlike pain, the ache of anticipation gets so deep inside you. It can't be soothed by adrenaline or shock. I know you wrote, I mean, so many of the things that you have written, of course, came out before, say, for example, our current administration. And yet, as I went back and was revisiting them, I kept finding metaphors for the ways that things are now. Yeah. Um, you know, the ache of anticipation of impeachment gets so deep. In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm always amazed when I read a, a book from a hundred years ago, 200 years ago. Um, and it still somehow finds a way, the good ones, you know, still find a way that they are talking to me now. It's amazing when art, you know, when literature can do that, even, in, even just in a sentence, speaking to a moment, let alone a whole book. So we had your wife, Emily Rabito on the show um, because she wrote a terrific essay uh, for the New York Review of Books website about climate change. And we were talking to her about genre and climate change. And she made the point that she thought nonfiction was the right genre in which to talk about climate change at this point. And I was wondering why you chose to use fiction to address some of the other fears that people are feeling now about racism and xenophobia and um, violence. Uh, well, I I tend to think like the 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 great thing that horror can do uh, is um, make use of a device uh, like a monster, uh, say, uh, in order to make the reader understand how a thing feels, which is not always the same as explaining what actually happened. 
Uh, I've chosen fiction in part because uh, I, I'm uh, terrible at writing nonfiction. So that's the first part, of it, uh, right? Uh, that's the reason then, I've chosen fiction over poetry. That's it. That's it. I mean, uh, you got to, uh, I think a, a degree of uh, self-awareness is helpful uh, in a human being, you know. Um, but the other reason is I find that, uh, particularly speaking of horror, um, I find it can be a great way to talk about a thing without necessarily having to name the thing directly. With a story, um, uh, especially like a horror story, I find people's defenses can drop as they feel like, oh, this is just a tale. This is just a story about whatever. Yeah. And then you get a chance to make them actually think about the thing that really matters to you, but in the guise of this creature. And so, I mean, the example I always like to use is that uh, it's really not a shock or surprise that uh, the Japanese should, that Godzilla should be a Japanese creation after Nagasaki and Hiroshima as a way to talk about what it felt like for everyone who survived the, the level of devastation and and incomprehension. If they were just to say, like, you know, it was really terrible when these bomb shops, people would say yes or no, I understand, whatever. But if you say a giant lizard that breathes electric fire stomps through the city, <laughs> killing anyone and everyone randomly and it there's and there's no way especially in the first movie there's no way to comprehend it or reason with it that is closer in my mind to what they're trying to express about the event yeah than nonfiction might be able to do i mean i feel like i have this whole theory and you can tell me whether it's bullshit or not um uh, and or maybe sugi will um but uh <laughs> So that, that there are certain periods of time when certain genres work best at doing that work that you're talking about right now. Uh, you know, you could think about the Western at a certain point in American history, or you could talk about science fiction in America in the 50s and 60s, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're going through a horror sort of renaissance now, if you're looking at Jordan Peele's work and Blumhouse productions in general. And I feel like there's a reason for that, and I think it is... It is that horror is being able to speak to something that's underneath the culture that is wasn't being surfaced, and you know you're we're ta you're talking about composing books before Trump became president, but you know Black Lives Matter started before Trump became president too, that's right? True. And we were in a period of time when everyone's like everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, right? But other people listening on perhaps a deeper register were saying, hey, maybe things aren't okay, right? And I feel that horror has been a way to speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, I definitely would agree. I don't think that theory is bullshit. Uh, and um, there's actually a, a, a horror writer named Brian Keene is the first one I ever heard point out that uh, he said that in particular, horror thrives under uh, Republican presidents. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, and then, if you if you think back on like all the horror you love, it's it's uh, Nixon era, it's Reagan era, it's Bush or Bush two, and now Trump. Like there's it, uh, it's, and it's not because like the the and his point was not necessarily that one kind of administration forces it so much as like um, a certain degree of anxiety and fear is often what is bubbling underneath, rightward pushes in the country right like we've gone too far this direction now we need to go back that direction right and that bubbling fear sort of finally comes up and you get 
this kind of work. I mean, his point was when he first said it, he said it, I think, just um, as Trump was being elected, he said, like, uh, uh, I think he, if I'm paraphrasing, he said, uh, I wish we weren't about to get some great horror, but <laughs> I think we are. And I think he was right. Yeah. I don't want to tell our listeners that we are recording you live in New York so they can just imagine all those taxi cabs outside your window. This is, uh, this is, I, when we interview people from New York, I love hearing the horns honk and think like, oh. Dude. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There they are on streets that actually have cars on them, unlike here in the Midwest. <laughs> oh, I see. A tea kettle, a car horn. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like one of the other things in, in what you're saying is about, I, I, um, I interviewed Shimamata Adichie here at the University of Minnesota last night. And so I was reading her work and your work and Ben Percy's work for this episode. And, <laughs> um, and it was a really interesting juxtaposition. That's a real mix, I was going to say. <laughs> it was really... Um, it was pretty. It was pretty great, and I noticed that one of the things in her work is that people are having a lot of argument, a lot of talk. They're arguing about ideas, and your work is also full of ideas, but the ideas are located in action because there's something unspeakable. And um, you know, like in looking at your work, there the things that are horrifying me are not necessarily things people say to each other, but things people do to each other, and that the work itself is composed of more descriptions. I mean, certainly her work has action in it, but. Your work, um, you know, as I'm following, say, a, a detective or, um, you know, Black Tom or um, Apollo, that the work feels also just located. It's very interior in a certain way. And then when people say things, the the sentences that they say to each other are so freighted. Um, they're they're there's not a lot of back and forth necessarily. There's not a lot of there's there's these threats that are delivered, right? There's the almost the lack of um, the exchange between characters is really different, and that seems like a a thing that I hadn't thought of in relation to the politics. That the way that now, I mean, people are afraid to say that certain things might happen, and that also seems like something reflected in horror. Mm. I, I mean, I like that idea of like um, like the the unspeakable. And uh, I mean, even to carry that into horror, another trope of horror is like cursed books or books that shouldn't be read. Uh, and that idea of knowledge and um, knowledge and ideas that must not be spread or shared uh, does seem to be like a very much a, a very horror sort of centered um, idea. But I do say I do think also like one of the reasons why, uh, especially in my more recent stuff, people talk less and act more is because I think I was speaking for myself. I was running into a problem like right around by like my second book. I realized um, I was just writing a lot of people sitting and talking or standing and talking. Um, <laughs> and uh, what I started to think was, Oh, I'm just writing. I'm just writing writers, right? Like whatever I might say their, their occupation is, they're people of the of the mind 
right. to become most active in in what they think or what they say. Um, but then when I was really thinking about, but I, that's not actually the people I only want to write about. I started saying like, I started paying more attention to people who who are intelligent, who live in their mind, all that kind of stuff, but who move their bodies, who use their bodies, who 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 make decisions and have them play out physically, not just through, not just verbally, you know. And it started to have an effect on my thinking about uh, even those more intellectual uh, or artistic characters. Um, how the sort of default way for me to understand the world because of the kind of person I am is through speech and thought. And so I just thought like, well, then I better work to strengthen my understanding and my ability to illustrate action. Well, uh, I always tell so much. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, please. <laughs> I just say, I always tell my students, you know, that, well, it's the, it's the old William Carlos Williams thing that's for poetry is no ideas, but in things. In other words, like it, you, it's nice to have an idea in a novel, but in, until that idea becomes physically manifested somehow um, through objects or bodies, it's not real. Um, and I, it seems to me like that's kind of what you're talking about. Just well, in terms of narrative. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, well, I do, I think that something that can get neglected is the ways that ideas are displayed through bodies now like when i write scenes the first scene is almost always usually people talking and then i just say in the revision i say okay how can i get rid of most of this dialogue and have their bodies tell you what is happening or have the way they're sitting or standing or the room they're in or the thing that they're worried about how can that tell you what matters and then all they say to each other's two or three sentences but hopefully you get the idea I think that, yeah, for me, what you're talking about, I really think of The Ballad of Black Tom, which you wrote as a response to H.P. Lovecraft's The Horror at Red Hook. And um, I won't spoil that story, uh, <laughs> but there's one particular action where I just was so, I was so horrified um, and also kind of couldn't tear my eyes away. But you, you wrote the story as a response to The Horror at Red Hook and that story is, you know, racism and xenophobia. And you give us the viewpoint of a black man and it has Black Lives Matter themes. And, and the fear of the feeling of fear that pervades that story, I think, connects not only to questions of the supernatural, but also to police violence. And some of what you're talking about, too, you know, The Ballad of Black Tom is going to be adapted for television. And I kept thinking as I was reading your work, you know, I would really want to I really want to watch it. I'm really going to have <laughs> to prepare myself. And when you talk about... I'm totally not going to. <laughs> Jurassic Park is about as far as I can go and down the like visual horror thing. I'm really I'm uh, completely then, weak in the knees. Yeah, then I would say it's going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I'm talking about, I if you show it on screen, I just don't even know. I... I, so when I, when Get Out and Us came out, you know, I felt that they were going to be part of a conversation that I desperately wanted to be a part of and that they so were um, evoking fears that I felt and thought about that there was no way I was going to miss it. And so I went and read the whole Wikipedia entry, like the whole, <laughs> plot, the whole plot for Get Out before I went. And then I went and saw it in a theater in the suburbs of Minneapolis, you know, after a lot of my friends, especially people of color, kind of went to go see it together um, close to when it opened. I went to go see it in the suburbs at a, at a theater where a lot of the other viewers were um, 
older non-people of color and I kept standing up and shrieking before everyone else. (laughs) I had made it worse for myself. Yeah, (laughs) by knowing. Exactly. And then I just sort of thought, well, this is a thing that I, you know, I tell my, when I teach um, plot or when I teach about, you know, why, you know, thinking about why you withhold information, right? So much horror comes from knowing more than, than your characters. And I think, you know, I'm so going to be so interested to see how the Ballad of Black Tom is adapted for television because what you're talking about in terms of bodies to actually see that on screen is going to be so interesting. And I wonder what has it been like for you to work on that? You're a co-executive producer on the show. And so the way that you're writing about bodies is now translated into a totally different, into a totally different medium and watching all of that be realized is going to be so terrifying. It's been kind of great to see how much you don't have to show. You just have to imply um, so that the occasional moments when you do actually show something just like snap someone's head off kind of thing, you know, like mm. they just gives them whiplash it, almost explicitly because so like uh, nothing about the process is it's not going to be some kind of a, it's not going to be like a slasher movie, you know, where every 10 minutes there's a kill and it's a lot, it's very bloody. Um, but my belief is that that will actually make it worse when you do finally see some of the things that are in the book and other things that are not in the book, but that I'm really hoping we get to do. You're like at the, at the edge of seeing or, or, of, or seeing, uh, of seeing the worst, and then you don't quite get it, you don't quite get it, and you almost start to think like, oh, just come on and give it to me. And then when we give it to you, you go, oh my God, I wish I hadn't seen that. Right? Like to me, that would be the best case because then it would really dig in there. Um, and it, and at the same time, hopefully it wouldn't numb you. I was reading a passage of the Ballad of Black Tom about a character, about the character, uh, of Malone. You write, uh, a door. He no longer saw the basement stairs leading up to sidewalk level. There was instead a great bubble of darkness that was not pure darkness. Through this door, he peered into the depths of a fathomless sea. And in that sea, the outline of something enormous, impossible to reconcile with his rational mind. To me, reading that passage now sounds like a pretty apt description of our government, among other things. The horror of feeling uncertain or disbelieved is something that pervades your work, too. Mental health, madness, memory. I was wondering if you see other horror tropes in the news now, or if there are things that you're reading about that make you think, I want to write something about that. Uh, Well, I mean, certainly the news as of yesterday, uh, when the, um, the... The 20 GOP members stormed uh, the uh, closed-door impeachment. That was so uh, crazy! Hearings. It was crazy. And I immediately thought about, like, uh, you know, I mean, the thing that's... So it's a publicity stunt, but what I immediately thought of was all the times when mobs... What mobs get up to when there is no camera. Yeah. And how much worse it is. When it's a group of people who believe that they they have the right as a mob to um, to enact whatever justice they decided is fit at this moment. Uh, so Emily, my wife, who was on the show, uh, we rarely watch horror together because she most because she's a complete skeptic. So she's constantly just like, "Why does a ghost just want to keep opening a window?" Like, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is so stupid. Uh, and then I'm sitting there feeling really silly because I'm like, oh, I was really scared by that opening window thing. Uh, so, you know, um, but that said, if we watch a show, like we watch, we're, we're watching a show on, on Hulu now called The Act. Mm, I haven't uh, seen it. It's wonderful. Perhaps not episodes. surprisingly. But it's not, <laughs> the, but the interesting thing is what it's actually, what it's all about is a mother who uh, has, I guess it's called a, the Munchausen by proxy syndrome oh, yeah. where you make your child sick. It's based on a true story, and she's raised her daughter uh, like kind of in an infantilized state. The daughter is in a wheelchair, has a lot of illnesses and issues, and the horror of that story is really just this codependence of mother and daughter, the unbelievably horrific effects that come from when that child finally explodes. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, and so there's nothing supernatural, but watching that, like we're about four episodes in, it's easily as scary as two thirds of the horror movies that I watch. Uh, and then more disturbing because I know this is real people. Well, I feel like watching somebody like Lindsey Graham, for instance, is scarier to me than watching Trump because Lindsey Graham, like there was a period of time when he, he is, he is completely turned around and pretends to believe or says that he believes things that he does not believe, right? So yes. when you see people completely change their character, to me, that feels like something out of horror. It's they, They've been bitten by a vampire or they <laughs> become a zombie. I mean, there are all kinds of metaphors for that in horror, right? Body snatchers, yeah. 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 I mean, it reminded me a little bit of what The Dark Knight, um, the Heath Ledger one where Right, he tells his origin story four or five times, and every yes. time it's different. And by the third time, you're like, "Oh God, what is happening?" And you know, I think, of course, of the lottery. Or, I mean, I was also thinking, and I think someone made this comparison online of the Charlottesville protests mm -hmm. when you know, thinking about kind of mobs. Um, how could you? How could you not? And I was also thinking, Whitney recommended a show to me called Years and Years. Um, I don't know that one. Uh, it's British, and it is it is about um, a family in England and their experiences of um, the political world and how it affects their personal lives. About what, what is it? Thirty years from now? Well, it moves um, forward. It's like starts during the second Trump administration, and then sort of speeds wow. up in time as it goes into the future. And I actually concluded watching that show feeling that I had watched horror. And yet, despite all of this, when we talk about horror, I was reading something that you had, um, another interview, and, and you said that horror made you happy, that it you loved being scared. And of course, I mean, if you're writing it, that, that must be true. There's this kind of optimism running through some of your work. You know, your responses to some of the some earlier horror writers are sometimes, you know, giving characters who might not have appeared at all in the original stories, like people of color, like they're not the sidekicks getting killed early. They're sometimes turning the tables on their persecutors. They're, they're sort of, they're much more powerful. And so there is this kind of, you love being scared, but you're also really optimistic. And you, you've spoken a little bit about how following your first book, you wanted to write in a way that included happiness for black and brown communities. And I was wondering kind of how you, how you ended up thinking of horror as a happy genre, despite all that. Well, I mean, uh, well, first reason I guess I, I, I think with happiness about horror is just because it's the genre I grew up in. My, it's probably the one genre me, my sister, and my mother all equally can enjoy, and like just sit around and watch. So there's a way that that sense of community and uh, all that uh, that's part of the happiness. Is like a, we just enjoyed being scared together. 
it's not good, but it is, there's a pleasure to it, right? So it's that kind of feeling of like, uh, um, it's contained chaos, right? It's not like the world now. One of the reasons I find horror a deeply optimistic genre is because it regularly suggests that you can win. You know, you can beat the monster, you can survive, or one of you at least can survive. The one who, I guess, doesn't have sex uh, can survive. <laughs> uh, right? And uh, that strikes me as uh, weirdly optimistic. I have never cited a commercial on this show before, but there is a very funny Geico commercial about people who are running around in a horror movie, and they keep saying... They say like, "Hey, let's let's go hide in the basement." No, let's hide in the attic. Oh, let's go hide behind that wall of of uh, of um, chainsaws. Yeah, let's go hide there. I don't that's know if a you great commercial. <laughs> yes, I, that's that's a I love love that commercial for the way it play, and the and the killer is even rolling his eyes. Yes, at how he's like they sick are. of him. He's like, "Oh God, again with these kids." <laughs> yes, and there's actually like a separate one. There's a. a I believe it's a Tide commercial directed by Rob Zombie. Speaking um, of great <laughs> horror directors, and it's a great, it's a, it's really probably the greatest Tide commercial uh, I've ever seen. Um, because I mean, spoilers or whatever, but it's basically like uh, you know one of these sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre killers facing the problem of like, well, what do you do with all these blood-soaked sheets? <laughs> And then Tide gets the stains out. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing commercial, and it's, it has so much fun with it. Well, we're truly in a horror renaissance if Tide is making <laughs> horror commercials. I think also it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice thing to – it's nice that we can also keep our sense of humor, um, which also feels important in these, in these dire times. Victor, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, this was really a, a great pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. And now we're excited to talk to Benjamin Percy. Benjamin is the author of four novels, The Dark Net, The Deadlands, Red Moon, and The Wilding, as well as two books of short stories, Refresh, Refresh, and The Language of Elk. His craft book, Thrill Me, Essays on Fiction, was published by Grey Wolf Press in 2016. In the comics world, he has written for both DC and Marvel about such famed characters as Batman, Wolverine, Nightwing, Green Arrow, and the Teen Titans. He currently writes X-Force for the New Dawn of X-Men at Marvel. His next book, his newest book of short stories, Suicide Woods, is out now from Grey Wolf. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So we're a podcast that analyzes the news through the lens of literature, but this week literature, or more specifically superhero comics and movies, is in the news. It's a little off topic for this episode, but since you've written for Marvel along with writing short stories and novels, I think we've would be remiss if we didn't ask for your take on Scorsese's recent comment that Marvel movies aren't cinema. Right, right. I mean, I, I understand the source of of his disdain and that, you know, you have these big budget features dominating the cinematic landscape and there's a lot less room right now for, you know, a $30 million uh, or even a $10 million movie. You tend to have movies that are really, really low budget, like $2 million features, and then you have Disney, Marvel, Star Wars. Uh, so I can understand how that's frustrating. But, you know, it also smacks of snobby gatekeeping. And, <laughs> you know, sure, there are some bad superhero movies out there, but has he seen The Dark Knight? Has he seen Logan? You know, there are also masterpieces. And... 
you know, I've dealt with this and I continue to deal with this. Uh, this sort of obsession with, you know, my way is the best way, or this is the style that has the, you know, that is considered high art or has the greatest pedigree. Um, you know, when I walked into my first creative writing classroom, I had grown up on stories about dragons and vampires and robots with laser eyes and barbarians with woolly underpants. <laughs> and I sat down and listened to the professor work through the syllabus. And the final thing that he said was no genre. And he had, you know, he was, he was hairless and expressionless. He looked a lot like a mannequin and I put up <laughs> my hand and he settled his dead expression upon me and said, yes. And I asked him what exactly he meant by no genre. And he said, no dragons, no vampires, no robots with laser eyes, and especially no barbarians with woolly underpants. <laughs> and, you know, I took this in for a moment and then raised my hand once more. And, and I asked him very earnestly, but what else is there? <laughs> because at the time I really I really didn't know. I'd never read Flannery O'Connor or Leslie Silko or James Baldwin or Alice Monroe. And I thereafter fell in love with literary fiction, but I never fell out of love with genre fiction. And but every single class I walked into, undergrad or as a grad student, no genre was the maxim. And I think that the, the tide is shifting, but you're just seeing one more echo of that when when you hear Scorsese and, and Coppola whining. Yeah, it present. seems kind of, it is, a, it sounds a little, I mean, obviously it sounds old-fashioned, right, to a certain extent. Um, but also, you know, we're talking about horror in this particular episode, and there is a connection between what Scorsese and Coppola are saying about the superhero films, that they don't convey emotional psychological experiences and the connections between human uh, human beings that's part of Scorsese's quote um and the way that high art has treated filmmakers and writers who've dealt with the horror genre as well well <clears throat> i would say that uh you know th these superhero movies are the equivalent of the western of this time yeah right and and i'm sure that people were grousing about john ford as well back in the day you know it's such a it's such a dominant medium and uh right now you know we have this kind of it's, it's our american mythology you have good and evil playing out on the screen in a in a way that's somewhat akin to the white hats and black hats of yesteryear mm -hmm. uh and i think that you see a similar moral play at work in a lot of horror as well you know that horror can be almost morally instructive at times as the screen franchise taught us. Um, and, you know, you see a boom in different types of storytelling that is typically tied to cultural unease, right? It's like Frankenstein is born out of the industrial revolution yeah. and the fear of science and technology, the fear of man playing God and Godzilla is about post-atomic anxieties and uh, invasion of the body snatchers is about the red scare and communists living invisibly among us. So after nine 11, you know, there was a slew of post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic narratives 
And if you look at what's happening right now, we're in a kind of golden age of horror filmmaking. I think it has everything to do with, you know, the divisive uh, situation that we find ourselves in under the Trump administration. So some of what we're talking about was referenced in an episode we did with Marlon James and Daniel Jose Older called Against Genre Snobbery. And yet um, horror and cinema and horror and literature have been combining, you know, as you mentioned, in really interesting, increasingly frequent and high profile ways over the past few years. You mentioned Get Out, um, Us, there's the reboot of the Twilight Zone series, which is forthcoming. Uh, Wit mentioned Blumhouse earlier. And, you know, there's the Insidious franchise, the Purge franchise, the Saw franchise, uh, and, you know, imports from remakes of, of um, films made in other places. Like I, I think of The Ring, which I could barely get through because I was terrified. Um, and, of course, there are writers like you and our first guest, Victor Laval, who have been interested in the form, not to mention Stephen King, whose books are still being made into movies, uh, Helen Oyeyemi, um, Carmen Maria Machado. The list kind of goes on and on and on. So... Why this horror renaissance now, do you think? Um, is it, you mentioned the Trump administration, can we, as we so often do on this podcast, tag quite a bit of it onto them? Well, it's it's that, it's social media, it's, you know, well, just these divisive times that we live in. Uh, you look at, you know, Us by Jordan Peele, and uh, uh, it's a double entendre. Us is also the U.S. and you know he's he's uh, mining that that divisiveness in the film and and the sort of the separation and duplicity and and moral confusion um, that that we so often see online that we that we mm. witness in the headlines and you know you also see examples of this in the rise of cli-fi. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. science oh, yeah. fiction that it has, you know, a environmental disaster at the heart of it, whether the coastlines are flooding or whether the center of the country is a desert wasteland. Um, you know, it, it sometimes feels like, you know, destroying the world has never been more popular because destroying <laughs> the world has never seemed more possible. Yeah, I um, I well, we talked to Omar Elakad about that, um, and we've had we also had we've had Claire Bay Watkins on this, and she's written some, uh, uh, you know, her uh, novel was considered cli-fi in in yeah, certain gold ways. Yeah, citrus fame. Yeah, right. the the thing that's interesting to me that you've mentioned that I hadn't thought about is the role social media plays on this and the doubling of self that you have an online self and an offline self. Yeah, you have you an know, avatar. Us is about doppelgangers. And then, I, I don't know if you've seen it yet. I've read about it, but haven't seen it. The new uh, movie, um, Parasite, has been getting tremendously good reviews uh, by a South uh, Korean director whose last mm-hmm. name is Bong, and I'm going to mess up the rest of his name. Um, are you guys familiar with this? Have you read about it? But it's also a doppelganger movie that's been getting compared to Us. I have not seen it, but I'm a fan of his work. He also made The Host. Yeah, um, and, you know, on that note, I have sort of a, a, a creepy story that plays into this and that you might have heard Let's it before. Let's do it. It's Halloween. A, 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 no, it's Halloween. A, a, father, a father walks into his child's bedroom and he sees his boy pale and shivering in the bed. 
And he asks, what's the matter? And the boy says, I think there's something under my bed. And the father says, I'm sure that's not the case. And he gets down on his knees, indulging the child, and lifts the dust ruffle and peers beneath the box spring and sees there a face, a pale and shivering face that seems somehow to belong to his boy, who says, I think there's something in my bed. And I love that story because of its duplicity, because of its moral confusion, because you're wondering, is this the predator? Is that the victim? Or are they both the monster? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I'm not even going to be able to listen to our own episode. <laughs> this reminds me of, I have this very distinct memory. And, and Ben, maybe you will know what I'm talking about because you are sort of you know all of these references. I have this distinct memory of reading a story about body snatchers when I was a kid. You know, I had gone through the more cheerful, um, safer parts of the the kids the the children's library, and then was reading this book at which um, someone was confessing to his neighbor that he had killed someone. And the neighbor is sort of becoming increasingly creeped out and then says, what did you do with the body? And at the end, the other character says, this is the body. And I've been thinking about this story probably at least, you know, several times a year since I was probably eight years old. I don't know what it is. I don't know who wrote it. But it this the creepy feeling that I had at the end of that, the this is the body, has stayed with me um, precisely for the reason that you mentioned. You know, sort of I had thought that this character was one person all along, and then it turns out that I was wrong. I was wrong about everything. And that yeah. frisson of horror. And um, the idea of a, of a shadow self, right? Or the idea of a twin, the idea of a duplicate, the idea, too, of a subterranean world. It's something that I'm exploring a lot of in Suicide Woods. But well, that's, something yeah, that see, makes me think of see the that Cold Boy, us. you know? Yeah, you see it in the Cold Boy, you see it in the Uncharted, uh, but you see it, too, in, you know, uh, Stranger Things, where there is the upside down, right? Right. The yeah. dark the dark mirror of our world. You see the exact same thing in Jordan Peele's Us, right? The, the subterranean world with doppelgangers in it. And, you know, this is something that Jekyll and Hyde is exploring, the Incredible Hulk is exploring, that the werewolf is exploring in, in some ways. You know, the, the fact that we have an inside face and an outside face, that we might behave in a lawful civilized manner when the shades are up or where we're out in public but then sometimes due to too much to drink or too much to snort or too little sleep or rage or whatever else like we become unhinged something wild inside us and fanged inside us uh, you know is uncaged and we're once again wolves ranging the woods so i think this 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 idea of of, of darker territories that can be explored and, you know, in, in, inside of us that you see that not only in my fiction, oftentimes, sometimes it's through the prism of like civilization clashing with wilderness, but you see this replicated in, in all sorts of media right now as well. And I think it has everything to do with us questioning, like, can we trust ourselves when we look at how we behave online or in politically heated moments? 
God, and I feel like my very clear answer to that is no, we can't run. <laughs> but, um, on that note, um, the interesting thing for me about Suicide Woods is that the stories aren't directly allegorical in the manner of, you know, we talked about Get Out or, you know, with Victory, we spoke about briefly about the lottery or even your own The Deadlands, which is a post-apocalyptic reimagining of Lewis and Clark's passage across the West. The connections in the stories are more emotional than political as is the case with the story Heart of a Bear, which we're hoping you'll read from for us. Yeah, right now? Yes. You got it. <clears throat> this might double as the title of my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> so Heart of a Bear. This is from the center of the story. So in this story, I was inspired in part by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and I've always been especially interested in chapters 6 through 11, and this is when the creature, when stumbling through the woods, happens upon a cabin, and he convalesces there for the winter, and he spies through a gap in the boards at the side of the house. He spies in on the family there, and from them he learns language, he learns human customs, and he also learns love. Like, he uh, has great affection for them, and when he introduces himself to the family, uh, in chapter 11, they, of course, reject him. In horror and enraged, he destroys them. So this was the seed of the story, which is about a bear, a bear who inserts himself into the human world. And so here he is in this passage, hanging out with a, a baby. The parents are no more. At home... The bear and the baby would sit on the couch and the light of the television would play over their bodies. They would watch game shows, talk shows, soap operas, police dramas, basketball games, the news. The bear would study people the size of long-legged insects walking back and forth across the screen and he would learn from them patterns of language and behavior. He wished he were like them. He wished he had a job and a family and friends that he could have picnics with or ride boats with or play basketball with. Somebody. But there was only the baby. He did the best he could with her. Sometimes he would try out a line of dialogue or mimic the hand gesture of an actor, and the baby would laugh and clap her fat little hands. He found a pack of Marlboros in the woman's purse and tried smoking them. The cigarettes kept his lips compressed, his teeth concealed, and the smoke seeping from his mouth formed a cloud that kept him half-hidden. Just one more bit of camouflage, along with the clothes and the hats, to distract people from his hulking size. He wondered if he should apply for a job. He could imagine himself in an office somewhere telling people what to do. One day, he watched a show on the Discovery Channel about a man who had been raised by wolves. There was a shot of him in a white room with too much light. His hair and his beard were long and knotted with mud and sticks. He was loping about on all fours. The camera zoomed in on his face to show his eyes, wild and rolling, and his mouth lost beneath his beard. And then the man opened his mouth and howled a song the bear thought he vaguely recognized. 
They ran out of baby food again. The baby could be consoled only by sucking on her thumb a taste of peace. The bear had no money, but he did have the gun. He waited for the sun to set before he drove again to the grocery store because television had taught him that robberies take place at night. He sat in the parking lot until it was nearly empty. Beyond the glass-fronted entrance, he could see the thin-necked man standing at a register, staring off into nothing. The pistol rested on the console. His long-fingered paw fit around its grip. It was as heavy as a stone. He shoved it in his coat pocket. The lamps buzzed above him as he stepped from the truck and shuffled through the parking lot, the sliding doors, and across the glowing expanse of white tile to where the shopping carts were lined up. He yanked one away with a jangle. Before he started down an aisle, he chanced to look over his shoulder. The man at the cash register was watching the bear with his eyes and his mouth wide open. He knew where to go this time. Off the shelves, he swept containers of formula and jars of mashed peas and carrots and sweet potatoes. They crashed into the cart until it was full and dripping with the sticky contents of the containers that had burst open. He hurried toward the register where the man was waiting for him. The bear imagined taking a bite out of his long throat when the lump in the middle of it went up and down, and he asked, is that some kind of costume? <laughs> the bear did not say anything, but held up the pistol. The man knew what to do. He opened the register and filled a paper sack with money, and a stream of piss went dribbling down his leg, and the bear felt delight at the smell of it, the power over the man. At this moment, there seemed to be no moral implications. To snatch money from the register was no different from clawing grubs from a log or honeycomb from a bee's nest. The only law of the forest was hunger and its satisfaction. In the parking lot, he heaved the cart into the back of the pickup and jumped into the cab and drove away at a reckless speed and lay on the horn for the music it made. Cars swerved off the road to avoid him. He could hear the groceries rattling around in the back. He was laughing, a fast pant that fogged the windshield so that he had to stick his head out of the window to find his way home. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. I love that part. <laughs> oh my god, I had so much fun reading that. <laughs> it was so Thanks. good. Uh, I say, I say, write what you know. <laughs> <laughs> Victor was talking about that. There, that actually, you know, and, and Suki was talking to him about the happiness that he gets from writing horror, and that, to me, that this, that sort of scene is an example of that. Uh, how that can happen. Um, and there, there, there is a necessity too of balance and modulation when you're writing horror, right? So, uh, something, some awful things happen in this piece, but there's also a lot of humor and heart, and that variation, you know, you can see it in even the bleakest stories like The Road, right? There's, despite this story taking place in this ashen wasteland, there's still that moment between the father and son with the coke can that's right. quite precious. 
And then, you know, if you look at Jaws, and I can teach any craft lesson by talking about Jaws, there's that great moment in the belly of the ship when the men are trading scar stories and they're drinking whiskey and they're laughing. And that, there's a kind of like a fulcrum moment in the middle of that scene when Richard Dreyfus and, and Chief Brody, uh, Hooper and Brody, when they ask about the scar on uh, Robert Shaw's arm on Captain Quint's arm and he tells them the story of the Indianapolis and how he was on board it when it sank and how all of the men were torn apart by sharks and how a shark's eyes are like doll's eyes, black and lifeless. (laughs) You know, that moment is so terrifying, so effectively terrifying because we were laughing a moment before. And, you know, I think it's the equivalent of sort of like giving your audience a tickle and then slugging them in the stomach. So I've never seen Jaws, and I think you just movies. convinced me. Well, so I've read the novel, oh, um, but I've never, serious. yeah, I've never, but I've never seen, I've never seen the movie, and and now I think I I should. It's it's funny to me also that uh, your callback to that scene, um, th- that's very similar to the language you used to describe your professor saying no genre. <laughs> Right. he's settled his dead eyes upon you. Um, and yeah, I think I also really appreciate the way that the, the excerpt that you read and just sort of so much of your work there is, I don't really, I haven't, I've sometimes taught humor uh, and have taught, you know, a class here on humor and grief. Um, you sort of make me wonder if I should teach and try to teach a class on humor and horror, because that's sort of the incongruity, the humor and the kind of absurdity there, but also the, the, the tickle of danger, right? The, the possibility of all of that, you know, we think these things don't match and something is going to go wrong. And that sort of anticipation being also a building block of horror and humor is, is really wonderful. It's a, it's a great collection. And thanks. It's also, you know, I think it applies to any emotion you're talking about grief, right? And the worst show of all time, and there's no debate about this is, is touched by an angel. Like it's an absolute <laughs> worst show of all time. It's the family and, circus of television. And one of one of the reasons it's awful is because of the way it handles sentimentality, right? So let's say you have uh, somebody dying of cancer in a hospital bed. In Touched by an Angel, there'll be like a, a ten minute long sequence where the pianos are trembling, where the violins are, are, you know, humming out these sad notes and, and, you know, people will be crying and the light will get gauzy and someone will monologue about the meaning of life and the promise of death and blah, 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 blah. And I feel nothing as a result. And one of the reasons I feel nothing is because I'm dead inside. But the other reason I feel (laughs) nothing is because, Right, my shields are up. I know what's coming. I know what they're trying to make me feel, and I think it's important to make your audience instead feel off kilter, unguarded. That's what you can really get at the core of their heart and make them gasp, make them cry, make them laugh, make them scream. Ben, all right, you know, impeachment is on the way, so we've been told. The zombie army of the Republicans is surely gathering to counterattack. In the skiff. <laughs> In the skiff. <laughs> with, their, with their pitchforks held high. Nobody knows if the Democrats and decent, fact-loving Americans will prevail or have their brains eaten. <laughs> and it is, for this episode, it is Halloween. So who do you read on Halloween in 2019? <laughs> 
Uh, well, I just picked up the ninth house. I have not yet dug into it. Um, Victor Lavelle, who you just had on the show, is a fantastic Halloween read, and I would highly recommend his book, The Changeling. Uh, but right now, what I'm doing is I'm rereading some classics, and I have on my bedside table uh, both a collection of Richard Matisse's stories, the old pulpy 40s, 50s, 60s stories that he wrote, and some of which were the basis of his Twilight Zone episodes. Oh. And, I, and I also have... Uh, my collection of tales from the crypt and vault of horror comics. <laughs> awesome. Oh wait, and you're doing a new, what is the, I thought I saw on your Twitter line that you're doing a new comic too. Well, I'm writing Wolverine. Yeah. And X-Force for Marvel and X-Force drops, uh, in about two weeks. Number, issue number one and Wolverine drops in February, but I've got a few other comics going on, including one that's called devil's highway. And it's about serial killer truckers and another one. It sort of has a true detective vibe right now. I don't know if you knew this, but the FBI believes there might be about a dozen serial killers operating as semi drivers in this country. So it's about that, that oh, underworld. Uh, and then I have a, a zombie book called uh, year zero, which is sort of much more world war Z than it is walking dead. It's a global perspective on the pandemic. And then I also have just a, a short comic, horror comic coming out about Man-Thing. Yeah, that was what I was thinking of. I remember Man-Thing. Yeah. I think there's a picture of you on your Twitter line saying, this is the first comic I ever pulled off the spinner rack. I don't know if that's true or not, no, but I thought that was cool. No, it, it's absolutely true. And his tagline is very Halloween-y. His tagline is, whatever knows fear burns at the touch of the man thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. I had totally forgotten about that car, that comic until I saw you, until I checked your Twitter line uh, when we were getting ready to do this. We, my story about Jaws is that I got busted, and I'm older than you guys, but I got busted in second grade because my friend Bobby Jackson convinced me to try to redraw the movie poster with a naked lady floating and the, the jaws of the fish coming up. He insisted to me that we had to do it accurately with a lady being naked and that was that was what really got us in trouble <laughs> when i used to read that book so i think the two first books my mom had when she came to america were love story and jaws and i don't really know why it was those two but so i was sort of reading jaws on the slide i used to have to put a piece of paper between that cover and my hand so that i would not be touching the, the shark's mouth and to this day, that's, that's probably what I would do if I were maybe, reading. Maybe you shouldn't watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> because I, to this day, can't get in a swimming pool without thinking I'm going I to can't be do alive. Jaws, man. That's yet another thing that I'm not doing. I, I love all the human scenes in it, but I'm, I can't do the, the people from the shot from the top when they start getting bitten is a problem for me. So, Ben, I think we can't possibly conclude this interview without finding out what you're going to dress up as for Halloween in 2019. You, you will tell us, will you? Uh, I am dressing up as Wolverine, nice. my spirit animal. So I have, I have my claws and my cigar and my flannel already. <laughs> That's great. Well, happy Halloween. And thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Suicide Woods, your new book out, your new collection from Grey Wolf Press. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for being here.
That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Special thanks to Chloe Syme and Gilbert Randolph, our intern producers from the UMKC MFA program. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas, feedback, and scary stories. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Facebook at FNF Pod, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the readings we talked about today. Happy reading, happy writing, and happy Halloween. <laughs>